Well, next week we're going to begin a series in the book of Ezekiel. I was going to start this week, but I really wanted to see your faces when we read Ezekiel, particularly when we read Ezekiel 1. So today I thought we would set the scene to Ezekiel by looking at Deuteronomy 30. In Deuteronomy, the the Israelites are on the brink of entering the the promised land. And Deuteronomy 30 has actually been called the, the climax of the entire book because it's here where all the great themes of Deuteronomy, they, they come together. And so for this reason, I may have bitten off more than I can chew, but we shall see how we go. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Father, for making yourself known to us, for, for showing us the way of salvation through faith in your Son. And we ask you now to teach us through your word so that we may follow Jesus this day and all the days until he returns. Amen. Well, as you know, the, the main catalyst of the Old Testament uh, is actually traced back to Exodus, where God established a covenant with the Hebrews, with the Israelites. Uh, at, at, this is at Mount Sinai. After God had rescued them from Egypt, after he'd brought them out of Egypt, and, and he promises, I will be your God and you will be my people. And the people promise, we will do everything the Lord has said. And as they finally prepare to enter the promised land, this, this covenant is renewed. And so all the things that the people of God are meant to be doing as the people of God are spelled out here in Deuteronomy. And toward the end, particularly in chapter 28, Moses lays out the blessings of obedience to it and the curses of disobedience to it. The blessings are astounding. And the curses are shocking. When you go bushwalking in the Blue Mountains, for example, this is just west of Sydney, um, whenever you're near an edge, of which there are many, there appears a guardrail, okay? There appears guardrails, something telling you where the boundaries are, something telling you where the danger is, something telling you where you should go, something telling you where you shouldn't go. That was the law for Israel, it protected them and it guided them so that it would go well for them. But ever since, ever since the covenant was established, and certainly by Deuteronomy chapter 30, by the time you come to Deuteronomy chapter 30, there is this tension that has developed between God's mercy and God's justice. And so when God himself describes himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. See that tension? And there's a tension, and and it's a tension that actually Israel has created because of the way that she has failed again and again and again. And so the question is, how can God be perfectly just and perfectly merciful? How can God be true to himself and true to himself? And for the most part, uh, that narrative tension remains unresolved until we get to the New Testament. But the answer is actually foreshadowed right here in Deuteronomy 30. 
The answer is foreshadowed right here in Deuteronomy 30. And the first part of the answer is this. You will fail. I don't know if you, if you noticed this, but the very first verse, Moses says, When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come on you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, Israel will fail. It's not a matter of if, but of when. And when that happens, God will do as he says, namely, he will exile them. So these verses here actually anticipate the exiles, one of which we find ourselves in the middle of when we come to Ezekiel. I wonder if you can tell me what all these people have in common. Have a good look at them and perhaps their scenes or their posture. These are the top... 15 most popular motivational speakers from around the world. Uh, they all live and work in Western countries, by the way, which I find very interesting. It's a huge market. But if there were to be a top 15 motivational speakers from the Bible, I wonder whether Moses would make the list. The entire book of Deuteronomy is basically a series of sermons, and at the climax of what Moses has to say, he says... In conclusion, you will fail. Right? How's that for a motivational speech? And his conclusion doesn't just apply to Israel, it applies to the entire human race. It applies to us. You will fail. <coughs> we know what we ought to do and we won't do it. We, we have a conscience. We sense that there is this natural law. We know what we ought to do, but we, but we won't do it. And if we're honest, we don't even live up to our own standards, let alone... God's standards, we fall short of the glory of God. You will fail. And so if chapter 30, verse 1 was all there was to the picture, then Moses surely would be one of the most demotivational speakers in the entire Bible. But that is not all there is to the picture. Because God will not be defeated, even by his own people's failure. In other words, God says, when you fail, I won't. Moses, he foresees Israel coming to his senses and remembering and returning to the Lord. And when they do, the Lord God himself would, verse 3, restore their fortunes, have compassion on them, gather them from all the nations where he scattered them. Verse 4, return them to the land. And verse 5, make them prosperous and numerous. Notice that all the hope is placed in God. God is the, God is the subject of almost every verb here in at least verses 1 through 10. It is all about his plans, his purposes, his promises. This isn't actually their story. It is God's story. And even their remembering and even their returning to the Lord is entirely conditional upon God doing what he says he will do in verse 6. Verse 6 is probably the the centre of this passage. Verse 6, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. So Moses speaks here of a circumcised heart. Ezekiel will speak of a new heart. Jeremiah, Another prophet, Jeremiah, will speak of a new covenant where God will put the law in his people's minds and write it on their hearts. You see, even after the exile, even after God uh, restores them to the land, things don't actually change. 
See, the real problem was never exile. The real problem was that they were rebellious sinners in need of new hearts, which is, by the way, our problem. This is talking beyond anything that actually happens in the life of the Israelites at this time. He's talking about something that's actually ultimately fulfilled in the life and in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so here's the good news of the gospel. Yes, Israel failed again and again and again and again. Right? That's the story of the Old Testament. But it ever anticipated an Israelite who would not fail. Right? Jesus is, is the true Israel, the, the faithful Israel who succeeds where the, the nation of Israel failed. The hope of Israel lies not in her ability to keep the covenant. The hope of Israel lies in God's unending commitment to remember mercy, ultimately in Christ. See, the curse of the covenant was to be cut off, right? Cut off from God, cut off from the land, which is why, by the way, circumcision is a sign of the covenant. It was, it was to remind them of the consequences of sin, and it's actually on the cross that Jesus was cut off for us. Paul writes in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So not only did he suffer God's curse, meaning that we don't have to, but in him we may receive all the blessings of the covenant as one who truly loved and always obeyed. In him, Christians are actually, <coughs> Christians are actually called uh, the ones who are truly circumcised. In him, we're the, we're the true Israel of God, heirs of the glorious destiny promised to God's old covenant people. But what does it mean to have a circumcised heart? I want to dwell on this for a moment. Well, the heart in the Bible is the control center of your being right it's the control center of your being remember jesus said where your treasure is there your heart will be also so circumcised heart speaks of <clears throat> the, the the deep desire to to love god and so obey god that is when what you ought to do and when and what you want to do are the same thing when your duty becomes your pleasure. And we are enabled and we as New Testament Christians are empowered <coughs> to do this as we look to the cross and as we see the curse. I'm indebted to Tim Keller to, for drawing my attention to this, but John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, former slave ship, captain he wrote a bunch of different hymns and he wrote one that illustrates this so beautifully here's the first verse our pleasure and our duty though opposite before since we have seen his beauty are joined to part no more to see the law by christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transforms a slave into a child and duty 
and your choice. Amazing. Now we're, we're talking beyond anything that actually happens in the life of the Israelites at this time, but on one level, if you notice in the reading, it appears as if Moses actually comes back to the present. From verses 11 onward. And he declares right there that the Israelites have, right now, have, have no excuse. God's law is very clear. It's very present. And so Moses says, look, now what I'm commanding you today <clears throat> is not too difficult for you or beyond your reach. It is not up in heaven, so you have to ask who will ascend into heaven again and proclaim, to it, uh, proclaim it to us so that we may obey it. Nor is it beyond the sea, so that you have to ask well, who's going to cross the sea to get it and proclaim to us so that we, we may obey it. No, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may obey it. The law was not impossibly idealistic. The law was not impractical. It wasn't unachievable. And so Moses here gives the people and every subsequent generation since a choice. See, he says, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. See, the Lord, the Lord didn't withhold life from Israel. The law held out life to Israel, and obedience to it would bring life and prosperity, and disobedience to the Lord would bring death and destruction. And Moses says, now choose life so that you and your children may live. So Israel had a decision to make, and it was between <coughs> life and death. And Israel's renewed commitment to the Lord on the very brink of the promised land must actually translate into a commitment to the Lord once in the promised land. Um, and yet, Moses has already said, right, they're going to fail. They have no excuse, but they won't do it. Wonderfully, Beautifully, Paul actually uses Moses' words in Romans 10 to teach us that Christ is the end of the law as a means to righteousness. And actually, trusting Christ <clears throat> is a true response to the law. And so in Romans, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. <coughs> that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Sisters and brothers, the only word that is not going to crush you, the only word that is not too difficult for you, is the gospel. Well, this text, Deuteronomy 30, has at least three horizons. Old Testament passages have horizons. <coughs> that is, they, they can look forward to one thing, but... They can also look forward to another thing. This passage has at least three horizons, the first of which is exile. Now, we are preparing for a series in Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is set in 
exile. Israel does fail. It wasn't, matter, it wasn't a matter of if. It was a matter of when. They chose death and destruction. And yet they were accusing God of being unfaithful to his promises. They're saying, where's God? What does he think he's doing? What happened to this covenant? Here already, we've seen that the covenant is not the problem. They are. And yet even, even failure is not final. For Israel, there's always a possibility to repent and to return to the Lord. Judgment could never be the last word. For God promises that he's, he's going to preserve a remnant, a portion of Israel, whom God would protect. Failure was very destructive for Israel. But it wasn't final, right? In the same way that failure is destructive for us. But it's not final. For Israel, after judgment, there was always the hope of salvation. The second horizon, I think, is actually, is actually eternity. These blessings and curses here in Deuteronomy actually point forward in some way to heaven and hell. And God would say from the very beginning that if you go to hell, it's your fault. Right? He will repay each person according to what they've done. But he will also say from the very beginning that if you go to heaven, there's no way that you deserve that. You mustn't give the impression that hell and heaven are deserved. Hell is, heaven's not. And Deuteronomy 30 wonderfully foreshadows the gospel of grace where God will not treat us as our sins deserve. Because beyond past, beyond present, beyond future failure stands the covenant faithfulness of the Lord God. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. And so the message for us this evening is actually the same message uh, that it would have been for the Israelites at the time. God says, when you fail, I won't. And in Jesus, he hasn't. For God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. <clears throat> the, the third horizon... <coughs> is actually an ever-present horizon. It's, it's an everyday reality. So Moses challenges the Israelites, and the Holy Spirit challenges us through God's Word to choose life now. And what is life? It's, it's a big question. What is life? Well, in the words of Deuteronomy... Chapter 30, verses 19 through 20. Life is loving God, listening to God, and holding fast to Him. For the Lord is your life. Uh, 
Life in the end is not found in the law itself, but in the God who gave it. Love him, listen to him, hold fast to him so that it would go well for you. May we choose life now because his message is so very different from, from every other message that we're hearing. His message is a message of grace. You've been saved, therefore. In Christ, may our duty become our pleasure. For it is at the cross that God's justice and God's mercy meet. Let me close in prayer. Father God, we thank you that from the very beginning you have been saying to your people, when you fail, I won't. We thank you for your faithfulness, despite our unfaithfulness. We thank you that in Jesus, you have redeemed us from the curse of the law. We thank you that we can have life both now and forevermore. For you are our life. Amen.